Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Been looking forward to this interview for some time. Joining me in the virtual studio in Hong Kong, Renu Batia. Renu, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Your name precedes you. I know you, we talked about this off air, that how do I introduce you? You just said, introduce me as Renu. I think people know you. I mean, you've got quite a name, haven't you? We could talk about all the accolades that you've scooped in recent years. But there are, uh, I guess, we, there's a lot of questions that people have and are interested about your background as well. So maybe we could sort of t- start at the top. Blockchain is what you do. Tell a little bit about Supercharger, FinTech, Hong Kong, and so on. Well, let's start with blockchain. It's very much the word of the moment. This It's been in vogue. Everyone's talking about it. Um, I think most people think about not necessarily blockchain, but they think about Bitcoin, crypto, fantastic run. It's been a, a huge money winner for some. People are now kind of rethinking it as the um, price of uh, Bitcoin, Ether, all of those coins have come down and people are now trying to understand what's next. Mm. So, um, you know, from my perspective, I look at the blockchain and I see uh, a technology which is really very nascent, but has the potential to be very transformative. Now, a lot of because we are in Hong Kong, a lot of people have looked at the blockchain from a fintech angle, see what we can do, uh, use the blockchain for, whether it's payments, capital markets, you know, know your customers, which have all got very valid uses Mm. um, in the fintech space. But I think for Hong Kong and or just generally the blockchain in particular, there is such a wide variety of different uses, um, particularly in things like um, healthcare, supply side uh, logistics. You know, we're, in, we're a huge import export kind of place. So um, the supply side of all these shipping ports, how goods move from one place to another, you know, they're crammed with a lot of paperwork. Lots of paperwork mm. has to be checked. Things have to be put in boxes and then money released, goods are released. And that creates a lot of inefficiencies. You know, we've been talking about, um, and well, the stock market in particular has been very volatile with the news that, um, you know, Trump is kind of having all these um, trade tariffs. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. What the cost to the economy, cost to the GDP of having these supply side inefficiencies is far, far greater. So if we can use the blockchain potentially to solve some of these issues, we can really, um, you know, create more um, growth in our economies. Mm. But if look, but look one step beyond that. Look what step beyond that. If you think about particularly in the developing countries, we have a, a lot of people who are still very rural. You know, they re- live in the, um, in rural communities and uh, they don't have access to their land. You know, they just know that, you know, my grandfather owned this land. It stretched from that tree to that tree. Land titles are um, difficult to come by or don't, you know, people don't have them. So by not having them, they're not part often able to access that to get um, better credit, you know, better loans. They're not they're not brought into the economy, so to speak. 
I mean, there was a Peruvian, um, I think he was Peruvian. There was an um, economist who looked at this and said, I think his name was Hernandez Soto. And he yeah. said, the amount of money that's locked up that people do not have access to because they do not have access to these land titles is in runs into trillions of dollars. So if we can think about putting something as simple as land titles onto the blockchain, which then they're there for the foreseeable future, you you know, people can then be brought into the economy. That's social inclusion. We that's a very powerful driving driving force to actually bring people out of um you know, uh, into the growth as aspect of the economy. Mm-hmm. So, so you, I mean, you just sort of put this into context so people understand. I mean, obviously, the people around you know who you are and so on, but some listeners may not be sort of up to speed on who you are and what you do. So I just like, let's sort of throw that out that obviously you're the founding partner of Supercharger, which is a, an acceler- a fintech accelerator in Hong Kong. But you're also, interestingly, you're, we were talking about this offline, you were born in India, even though you grew up effectively in the UK. So, you know, you're not talking that position as somebody who's a, a coder or a technologist who's just sort of got into blockchain. You're come, coming in from a different angle, aren't you? you? You've been there as well. I mean, again, I said I had a lot of questions for you, Renu. So the, the, your background as well, you're a physician. Yes, I, mean, I am I was surprised a by that. You, I mean, were you a GP, qualified as a GP? Um, I trained in the, in the UK, so I actually worked in the NHS. So the right. NHS is very close to my heart. I worked in, um, in, most of the, uh, in the teaching hospital, so no, I right. wasn't a GP. So most of the work that I did as a physician was um, in coronary care, um, emergency medicine. or um, So it's um, pretty full-on. Hmm. Uh, medicine. So I did that um, in the UK. Uh, and that's before I went into, I suppose I got an MBA and went into investment banking right, right, um, right. and worked at um, in New York um, well, in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. To ask you. Yeah, exactly. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Because very few people train as physicians and then move out of that world, especially if you're Indian, because I guess there's a lot of expectations about the family, isn't it? You know, we invested in you, 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 you know, we paid for your education, you become a doctor or a physician, you don't then go and take a risk and move into another world or into investment banking as well. Or, you know, especially what you're doing now in the more sort of entrepreneurial world. What, what was sort of the, the thinking behind that? Why did you leave and why did you get into investment banking? I don't think it was a, a deliberate kind of thing, oh, leave medicine and right. sort of just do investment banking. I think I was, you know, I was kind of interested in the decisions that were beginning to be made or or I perceived being made within the NHS, which was how did, you know, certain drugs we didn't prescribe or certain things we did. And there were obviously economic reasons behind that. And I thought, well, it would be fun to try and understand, you know, how, why those decisions were, because, you know, mm. I'd just gone straight from school into medical school and became a doctor. So I was quite interested in getting, um, trying to understand that and think about economic policy for, for sort of healthcare. Mm. And so I thought I'd go and get a, an economics degree while I was, and people suggested do an MBA. I didn't really, to be honest, at the time understood the difference and just thought, well, it sounds fairly similar. <laughs> kind of showing my naivety yeah. there. 
and just went and did an MBA, um, thinking that, okay, um, having learned a few more things, I'll go back and work in the UK and perhaps work for a think tank mm. and look at economic policies behind healthcare. Um, but to be uh, without really any grand plans, I was just very surprised I was offered all these jobs on um, Wall Street. And I thought, well, it won't hurt me if I did a couple of years on Wall Street and then went to my think tank right. and worked for you know, policy on healthcare. Um, but while doing investment banking, um, really quite, so to my utter surprise, really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, and I think probably, I would have probably gone on to do sort of healthcare investment banking, maybe, or moved into economics of healthcare policy-wise if we had stayed in the UK, but we came out to Hong Kong and those avenues weren't really possible. And I thought what's really interesting in Hong Kong is the stock markets, not so much as the corporate finance part because the markets were volatile. That's where the excitement was. Mm. And I suppose that's very similar to the kind of medicine that I did, which was coronary care, emergency medicine, all sort of having a, not an adrenaline rush, but they do thrive on some excitement. Yeah, yeah. So I think, so I think I, you know, was lucky enough to get a, you know, offer, get a job at HSBC. So I did investment management. And then obviously in there, I didn't really look at stocks. I looked, did a lot of work with uh, derivatives, which were very new at the time in Hong Kong options. So, you know, um, stayed in the world of financial services for a very long time um, and really enjoyed the ride. Mm. Um, but I was, with the back of my mind at the time, there was still the idea that I should do something kind of with healthcare and then sort of try to create a company called China MD with a view to something similar to WebMD right. so that I could, um, you know, have all of this information online on healthcare so that was kind of my entrepreneurial moment that Renu, also that, came that, and went that, that was back in uh, 2000 listen, 2000 exactly i mean you're talking about webmd i mean 2000 yeah. you you were well five or six years ahead of social media to put it into context people were still using netscape navigator and aol back in 2000 right so let's sort yeah. of you know put it in the context that was your entrepreneurial moment i mean that was my entrepreneurial moment because i had the view that we would we could bring people onto the side, right. get for the Chinese market, not sort of Chinese market, but just understanding of their physiological needs and then have an online pharmacy, which was so ahead of its time. We still don't really have those in Hong Kong. Was it so too ahead of its time, do you think? I, I think it was ahead of its time. And also the government wasn't really, um, you know, in Hong Kong, we, ha we have an unusual system where do um doctors are able to prescribe and dispense right. so there's there is perhaps less need for people to go to a a separate pharmacy but mm. in most places that could have worked so that was my uh, online you know my entrepreneurial moment do you think when you were i mean if you sort of wind it back a little bit were you always entrepreneurial did you always kind of have that feeling i know you sort of you, you learnt the ropes going through investment banking corporate finance you also trained in medicine did you feel inside you all through this that someday i'm going to go and start my own thing or was it kind of a later development 
No, I think it was a late, much later development. I think it came more from the fact that by that time, I also had um, two young girls, mm. um, and I was thinking, uh, you know, I at the time I was, you know, running a very large sum of money, and it was macro, and it and it was also where I had a lot of my markets. You know, they were coming online as I was winding up my day, yeah. and so. I felt that if I needed to spend time with the girls, I would have to do something on my of my own because you know what I was thinking would not happen. It cannot be mm. um, kind of be in derivatives and manage a billion dollar fund and <laughs> and do it part time. So I then needed to figure something out for myself. So yeah, that yeah. was a moment of thinking, what can I do? So you did. China MD for about a year, wasn't it? And then yes, what, what did, did that then change things inside you? Because even though I know you're quite ahead of the time, you'd left HSBC, you'd left Goldman Sachs, you'd left the NHS, very large employers. You know, probably a very safe world to be in. Even though you know you'd probably they would demand every ounce of flesh out of you for you know if you stayed there. What what happened then? Were you thinking, okay, I might go back to the the corporate world, or what? You now that you'd tasted entrepreneurship was it only sort of a case of right I've got to continue with this um I, I had no desire to go back although I suppose in many ways it would one of the easier things to do would have been if I wanted part-time to said okay I'll go back into medicine yeah which which I could have done because uh, you know I am licensed but um I think for me it was like okay I, I got to figure out something else. Mm. I can work really hard. I know I can do that. And that's not a, it's not even part of my equation. Um, that just goes with being who I am. But more, if I want to spend time with my girls mm. and have the flexibility, I'm going to have to create something of my own. And, and that's what I put my energy into, which was to create something of my own where I, which would give me, um, satisfy my kind of desire to learn and challenge myself would also be economical and also give me flexibility with my girls. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing decision that you've taken and I wonder what sort of thought processes went into that. Was it excitement? Were you scared? Because I think, you know, listeners face this all the time, especially those that, you know, they're thinking about oh, what do I do next? You know, maybe they, they work for a Goldman Sachs and they're thinking about, well, you know, I need to go and start my own thing. I Not always accessible to this kind of stories of people saying, this is what I did, this is how, you know, they, they look, for example, at the, the, the celebrity entrepreneurs out there and those are the only kind of stories they hear. But I think it's, it's real entrepreneurs, people like yourself that really inspire people to make change. So what was going through your mind at this process when you were thinking about doing I think... I think for uh, those fears are very natural. Anyone making a decision has to try to come at it from a rational perspective. Mm. You know, these aren't something that you just kind of dive into sort of on an emotional front. Um, from my perspective, I, I've, the one thing I had learned in all doing all of the things I had done in my life is if you can live with failure, then you can do it. Mm. And the, what I mean by that is in many ways, the more you succeed in many things, the harder it feels to fail. Mm. And if you're afraid of that failure, if you cannot take that 
risk of failing, then it's very hard to learn new things in sometimes or take major um, side trips and major, ch- you know, challenges and leaps and do t- something different. So, yes, going from the NHS, you know, where I'd only done medicine to being with all these MBA students to being an investment banker, there were a lot of risks, mm. you know, could easily fail and all of this. But but you have to, I kind of in, in that journey had figured out for myself that I can live with my failures. And if I can live with my failures, I can go on and try different things. And and the next thing I ended up doing was actually building real estate in Japan. So, right. which, you know, I had no idea about. I didn't really know anything right, about right. real okay. estate. Uh, okay, I was just going to ask you, like, why the hell did that happen? Because it's like, I mean... I know you say you like adventure and you, you sort of like that sort of buzz that you get with it being at the, the, the forefront of, of change. And obviously this sort of brings us back to blockchain as well. But, okay, you're in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is not Japan. Your background is investment banking and medicine, but real estate, Japan. How, how did all that come together? Oh, it was very simple. It okay, was very good. simple. <laughs> I mean, we were stuck. I was with my girls. We were stuck in Canada. Right. Uh, when SARS happened because the schools were closed and we had just, we had gone ski, uh, gone for a holiday there, the schools closed, so we ended up staying there. We had gone skiing, um, the mountain was closed. For about two and a half months, I had nothing to do but to watch the trees grow. Wow. So I felt, okay, so how do ski markets work? How does this work? And mm. I just sort of started te- teaching myself, thinking, and a friend had, when we got back to Hong Kong, we were having a conversation. She said she skied in the Seco. And I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. Let's go and take a look. Mm. And then, you know, economically, I felt the yen was cheap. And so then we came back and I thought, this place is really interesting. It's got great snow. It's got all of these factors. It should do well. And um, we should buy a piece of land. And she said, you're mad. I said, let's buy a piece of land. Let's build a house, you and I. The worst that will happen is... We might not get on. The children might not get on. We'll drive each other nuts. But I think we'll be fine because it'll be just good fun skiing. Um, We did. Within our four, three and a half days of being there, uh, we did try to, you know, buy some land. And then, then you know, we did did some research and thought this could be really interesting and ended up – being very, very, very small time developers of building right, ski right, houses right. and wow. then and then selling them. But it was, you know, we got a chance to see something grow in front of you. It's very satisfying to see a building oh, yeah, and yeah. figuring was... that out and figuring out Japanese accounting and trying to understand Japanese construction I'm scratching, I'm scratching and all of that. I'm scratching my head because, like, I mean, I lived in Japan so and I speak Japanese. And so even I found it very frustrating at times but you've come from outside and you, so Niseko in in uh, Hokkaido right which is up north. yes so the, the you know it's a fantastic skiing locations so I've never skied there but I know a lot of people that go there and you know they swear by it amazing location so you you went there you built ski lodges there I, I want to ask you Renu I mean obviously you come from the world of investment banking into this and investment banking is all about taking risks every day and you were risking billions I suppose but here in a much more different scale but w- the risk is different isn't it I mean now you're risking the risk your is money. different it, 
This is totally different. This this is my personal money, which is very different from when you manage a fund. There, that's a professional decision. Right. This is, you know, our hard-earned money that I'm putting down and hoping that we're right mm. in making the, the, this decision. And at times it was, uh, you know... It sound, you know, I, you know, when initially it was all very, it was all going great in the first couple of years, but then, you know, we had financial crisis, mm. we had Fukushima, yeah, we had the yen go from sort of 112 to 85, huge appreciation. Nobody wanted to look at Niseko, so mm. you have to learn to, you know, kind of clamp down and make um, economies and figure things out. And you, you know, you also have to to um, be able to accept that you're not going to be able to get out of these properties for a while. You, you, you're, you're living living through that down cycle and yeah. up cycle. Yeah. And the, and you know, one thing I had learned, obviously, in my thing, is try try not to leverage yourself too much, because that's the only way to get to come out of these down right, right. cycles. A bit of because if you're leveraged. Space, yeah. Yeah, if you if you're leveraged, then the stress is enormous. Mm. Is enormous. If you're not so leveraged, then you know you can potentially uh, ride through. But fundamentally, you know, the market was going to come out. But you have to have a like everybody in Hong Kong knows. I mean, nobody's better at investment in real estate, I would say, than a lot of the people in Hong Kong. So yeah, yeah. you know, they understand this exceptionally well. You know, we just had happened to have done it in um, Niseko, but again, you know, you have to, um, you have to have curiosity, you have to be able to t- assess risk, mm. and that risk is very much a part of who you know. What level of risk are you comfortable with, and how do you manage that risk, and how mm. do you compartmentalize? You know, and that's what being an entrepreneur as well. There's an interesting part of that story. I mean, you talk about Niseko as if it's no big deal. I mean, because obviously you've had success there. And I know it was a, a big challenge for you as well. So I don't want to demean it in any way. But the way you talk about it to other people listening, they may, you know, underestimate just the challenge that that was in in getting there. But I, I wonder as well, because you, you know, the interesting part about your story, runner is you, um, you were born in India, you left India at four, you moved to the UK, you grew up there, and you went back to India when you were 18 to have a look, you know, sort of the first time as an really to understand it. But you've lived all over, you lived in the US, you spent time in Canada, you're in Hong Kong. Does that, you know, that sort of lifestyle where you've lived all over, and you haven't sort of really been attached to one place, does that make going into a place like Niseko in Hokkaido, nothing's not not such a big deal like for some people may say oh no they're japanese there therefore you know i'm not japanese it's not going to work did that sort of give you a different way of looking at it than most people um i think having worked in many different environments um does give you a level comfort um i had while at hsbc had gone up to not to hokkaido but to tokyo regularly i was fully aware of how not fully aware how Japanese thinks that would be way overstate stating this, but I had an understanding of how Japanese work, and I was just thinking about what you said just now, which is that you spoke speak Japan and all of Japanese and all of that. I think part of the the thing was in some ways 
by not speaking Japanese, I know it might sound odd. I think in some ways it acted as a a benefit to us mm. because the, the issue was, you know, my friend and I were two women who turn up and, you know, we're trying to work our way through Naseko in terms of trying to figure out who we should talk to, et cetera, and we don't speak any Japanese. Um, by the time the second or third trip, it almost was an advantage not speaking because you weren't, I think if I spoke it, I would have been so sensitive in some mm. ways to how to negotiate. So instead, instead, what we would say is we understand that this is not the usual practice, you know, and we had asked the translate person to translate for us. But, how, but this is something that was very necessary for us. So you could sort of almost sort of be an outsider and not get tight, played it to my advantage rather than just say, oh my gosh, this is, I can't say this, I can't do this, this is not the norm. So it was very much like, we understand this may not be the usual practice and we totally get this. However, can you consider, could you please, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of push that envelope and boundary to, you know, to our own advantage. That's a very interesting way of looking at it, Renu. And I think you're probably onto something there. Is that you could be too respectful, can't you, of, of a culture, of yeah. a way of, importantly, a way of doing things. And I suppose anything about being involved in a culture is that you have to start at the bottom and work your way up if you come from the outside. But if you always consciously distance yourself a little bit, especially with real estate as well, because you always... You know, whenever I see friends or people in the industry get involved in real estate, I know the ones who are going to make the big mistakes and lose money are the ones who spend too much time worrying about the colour of the bathroom or, you know, unless it's like high-end luxury properties, you, you've just got to treat this as a business decision and not as a place necessarily that you would be involved yeah. in. When you're, when you're building, it, this is not for you. You have to have that emotional detachment. You have to say very clearly, this is what most people will like. This is what will hopefully sell. And, you know, no, it doesn't always go right. Mm. I mean, even for us, we were lucky when we got in early, but then we had the financial crisis and the markets were dead for five, six, almost seven years. And you had to sort of um, live through them. But to go back to your point, I'm not trying to to say that by being a little bit out the culture, um, you're not rude or anything and no. you're not being... Um, uh, you know, disrespectful. It's just that you're not letting that, um, you're not overwhelmed by the sen- by how things are done. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you're able to just keep that little bit of distance, which I think, um, you know, for, for, for me, um, for us, I think it helped. Yeah. It's a very interesting observation. And I think the word you used, overwhelmed, is probably the right one in not, not, being overwhelmed and stepping back from that. Yeah. I wonder now that you're, I mean, you, you look at your accolades as well. I mean, just for example, top 100 women in fintech 2018. Obviously, you know, when people hear that, anybody involved in fintech, anybody involved with blockchain, for example, immediately you think of, well, a Russian hacker, somebody <laughs> who's maybe, you know, <laughs> straight out of Stanford <laughs> University in a pair of shorts and sandals. That's not you. And do, is that sort of similar mindset there? The fact that you're not, I mean, most people would be overwhelmed by blockchain because it's a different language almost for a lot of people. 
are you approaching it from the same way that you know you're part of it but not of it if you like i don't think it's from part of it or of it i think the, the point you made about language i think is is the interesting point for me here it's the same thing look when you go and see a doctor and the doctor says to you ah oh, you have a chest infection i think most people get that i can also say oh you have pneumonia um maybe it's lobular pneumonia you know just looking at all of this you walk away with most people um will have very different um information or pick images in their mind of what they have mm. one is quite simple says so chest infection one says god pneumonia this could mean i don't know what yeah and i think it, it's the same you know if you look at fintech we've had technology in fin, uh, in financial services for a very long time you know so if fintech became a word that became used yes there are differences we're now talking about not technology that's in, being used in large ways by the banks and financial services more about startups and how they connect with uh, are they changing their environment or how we look at doing you know i- uh, interacting with each other in terms of whether it's payments or st- you know how we trade and etc so but i think what one needs to do is just get away from the buzzwords yeah. and look at what it means you look at blockchain people say distributed ledgers immutable all these words and that can be in many ways um it can put it at another level but you go back and say well what's a ledger you know that's it, it's no different in some ways um in an accounting book where pe- yeah, you know people yeah. recorded data and, and and you know the rothschild had ledgers yeah you know all the time yeah. that only some people were allowed to speak that's no more no different from having something which is a permissioned ledger but we can call it many words on the blockchain and everything else and it and and it's um it's those words mm. that can cause a lot of um conf- not just confusion but words that can make people apprehensive but if you can just step back and say what is it and of course most profession in every profession there is the language of that profession right right in healthcare Whether as well right with, with yes. exactly you walk into a like you say walk into the doctors and they they scribble on a bit of paper in a script which is i don't know where does that where where did they learn to write those prescriptions from they use that scribble but it's all part of that sort of positioning isn't it that it is positioning it's making it it's big by saying look you've come to me i'm going to give you it's a power thing it's yeah. a it's that building of that real, you know the that setting so i can tell you you've got a chest infection and you'll just breathe a sigh of relief and think that he's going to give you some antibiotics you'll go home and he says the word you know pneumonia and that will have different images and you know um and it's the same i think you you just whether it's new technology whether it's anything new you have to just step back a mm. little and say what does that word mean how can i relate it to something that i already instinctively know hmm do you, when you spend time talking to people in fintech or especially in blockchain for example that language is often used a lot precisely for that positioning especially when you get to very technical people who like to use it to demonstrate their their knowledge and the fact that they've been in this since you know 
you know, many years before anybody else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How, how do you deal with that? Because Renu, you you speak very frankly, and I, I think that's sort of the beauty of what you do is that you have that unique ability to tell it as it is and not mess around with the BS jargon. So h- how do you? manage because people want expect really to you to come out with all these amazing words when you're talking about blockchain um i i think what you do is you this i mean if you're it depends on the setting you're in um i think in at all times at all times whether you're a conference or whether you're in a meeting ultimately it's it's a communication place it's a mm. communication I I need them to understand what I'm trying to say and they need to make me understand. So one thing you have to make sure is that you cannot be afraid to ask questions. You mm. cannot be afraid to question. If you do not ask questions you'll just go back and 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 it it'll all be hazy. But I have been in situations too where people have I've been on places where I've had people on a panel on blockchain saying, you know, um and they say we we'll look at new companies and if there's in that company one of the founders is over 40 we just know you know they're not going to be up on the technology well wow. you know they're not going to be <laughs> that useful or in tune do you feel your blood boiling when you start hearing that i mean you know i i i find i i had a conversation today and it was with an investor oh sorry it was with somebody who was talking to an investor and they said if the investor said that if anybody in the the founding team was over a certain age and they're 40 50 they wouldn't touch the company and i thought wow really because i just saw the data come out from MIT on was it MIT to this week yes and actually Average more and fa- more of the founders more and more of the founders are older yeah. and this is the thing you see technology is only one part of a successful com- um company it is one part it can be a very big part of it but ultimately it's about a few things it's about what is the product what is the market you know do you understand who you're selling to do you understand why they will buy all of these these things this requires more than the just the technology it requires you to understand the industry that you are in the domain the vertical you see even there you can conf- you can make it sound more complicated so verticals mm. domains siloed Oh, but what you're really saying is do you understand who you're going to sell this product to who might use it yeah. and why would they use it and even in today's world where everyone is busy you know uh, downloading different apps to things to try that doesn't take very much the question is will they come back and use your app a week's time a month's time mm. Mm. so those fundamentals are the same so when when people say that to me is i just think well you know let's just you know i understand what you might say about somebody being old but it's really more about do they have the knowledge do they you know can you you know can you understand what what it is that they're saying mm. we talk a lot about the you know the different aspects of different generation of course you know the the pace of technology changes has been huge but ultimately things are still the same you know mm. you still have to have customers for your products Absolutely. Yes, very interesting. If you look at uh, you know that whole spread of you talk about different apps, different applications and people talking about the potential of blockchain for example. I I'm not a uh I I'm a I'm agnostic. I'm a I'm a half believer. I'll wait till I see it type thing. But you know that's what's what I'm kind of 
fascinated by is the applications like some of the things that you've talked about like in healthcare and the next billion as it's often talked about and so on you've already alluded to that and all the way on the other side of the, the spectrum you have things like crypto kitties which i look at that and thinking okay it's interesting but i, I really don't understand what that is and then you have like for example you talked about um land titles you know land registry uh, those kind of issues like in places in india where you know this stuff may not be written down is there any sort of you know if you look at that spread of the spectrum do you focus on a particular area i mean with your background are you interested particularly in healthcare applications of blockchain um i i not necessarily i focus on any one particular area but what i do think is that um you're right there's a lot of people exploring a lot of different ways of look, looking at the blockchain and um you know, many will not necessarily succeed. And um, rather than going into all different issues of why they would or wouldn't, the big thing, the big things is that in order for this, many of these technologies to have a, a really transformative kind of um, changes, we do need public part, private partnerships. Mm. Because otherwise what you'll happen, if you just even look, example in healthcare, um, if you're in the healthcare and you only have your me medical records is something that people talk about a lot about putting them all on the blockchain. Well, it's not necessarily clear to me that you would want all of that information on the blockchain. But even if you, let's say, assume you did, you need to then make sure that your private clinics and your public hospitals are all sort of speak, that these chains speak to each other. Hmm. or they're all on the same chain. Otherwise, all you've done is create little circles of communities that or circles of blockchains that don't talk to each other. Hmm. I mean, one area, I, you know, there are some very, apart from the title deeds, I think provenance, the art market, um, you'd look at the blood diamond trade that we people have been hmm. looking at and how, you know, a lot of the wars and a lot of the misery that occur around the trade of these diamonds. So there's, you know, there's some great work being done by companies that are in that whole idea of identifying where right. those diamonds came from. Some traceability, so yeah. It's that traceability. Yeah. You know, it's fraudulent drugs. So it's being right, on right, the yeah. pharmaceutical yeah. supply chain and knowing that this drug was manufactured here and that whole tracking of it all the way to the end user has enormous implication. I mean, Asia ha does unfortunately suffer from a lot of people often having, you know, they go and spend their hard-earned money buying these medicines and mm. what they've got is talcum powder. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's a very valid use of the, you know, a uh, blockchain or, you know, so, but these require to some extent partnerships developing between mm. the public side the private side because we also have to deal with data privacy issues how do we move all of this stuff around so i think if we can just take a step back and just think okay this is a young technology and there's lots of people are going to try different things and some will succeed and as i said i'm sure the guys who made crypto kitties made a ton of money mm. but but this technology can get us a long way and i'm particularly interested in in this technology in the developing world 
because mm. a lot of times, and this is also true in fintech as well, a lot of times um, if you already have legacy infrastructures and all that means is you've already invested a lot of money in computers and, and technology. So you have to show real, real benefits before you're going to dismantle all that existing technology and bring in new ones. Mm. Okay, but if you're in a country where it doesn't, you don't have all of that, then you can leapfrog and potentially use this new technology in the fintech space, in the, you know, not just blockchain, but just other technology and leapfrog. Right. And that's what you've seen in, you know, places like um, uh, China, where we've had not just fintech companies, I really call them tech fin companies, because they're massive technology companies who now, you know, like Alibaba and others mm. are going from e-commerce platforms. And now I would say they're more lifestyle company because their technology pervades so many aspects of our lives. They've become financial companies with Alipay and financial. They've become, um, you know, so, and then they become um, investment companies with Uebo. Um, so, they, so they've been able to leapfrog that because there wasn't any, old legacy infrastructures to destroy or change will that happen or will that pattern emerge in india for example because it's a little bit behind in that respect but it may not have the legacy that maybe something like blockchain could come in and you know leapfrog all the vested interests that sometimes slow these things down do you see that at all are there areas where you you're confident optimistic that that will happen um i think india is a very different case um from um China, because in China, what we had was, um, you know, we came out of a, mo a mono banking financial model. We didn't have a lot of these uh, regulatory frameworks. India isn't that. India has had hundreds of banks. It's actually fairly sophisticated in a lot of things. So you can't just shove them all aside and say, right, we're going to take blockchain mm. or we're going to implement this technology. It's also a country, as you know, famous, famous for its um, regulations. Yep. You know, it was not known as a light, you know, the licensed Raj for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for want of a better word, because there is, you know, there's huge regulatory environment. So I don't think it's, as, it's quite so easy for these companies to grow in that way. Mm. But I am very excited about the idea of the India tech stack, which is built on the India Aadhaar system, the biometric system, which mm. gives gives over a billion people a unique identity. Um, and that has meant huge, huge number of people coming in who never had an identity, but they weren't able to access many things, suddenly are able to do that. And actually, the India tax stack built on, on the entire Aadhaar system, this biometric, um, is a very powerful um, tool for the country because for the first time, using that same identity, you can pay your taxes, you can get subsidies, you can get agricultural subsidies, farmers things. So it allows you to do many things. And there is actually, interestingly, an ongoing debate at the moment whether the Aadhaar system, the underlying biometric mm. um, ID should go on the blockchain and they're sort of arguing in a very Indian way. Right. There is a heated 
Everybody's got an opinion in India. Yes, Indians love to pontificate. <laughs> exactly, Indians love to pontificate. So there's a lovely, you know, kind of a debate going on there. But I think the um, the India the Aadhaar system has pushed the the tech to a new level. Right. I um I don't think um you know that India and um, India with its democracy and and a and a federal system with its complicated um, systems of politics is not easy to push people in one direction exactly. without taking a yeah. lot of views into consideration. So in many ways, you know, the China is a very, very different system in that way. Yeah, we have to remember that, you know, when you push people in one direction, those those people vote, which is yes. different in India. So you have to always bear that. In, I mean, that's why India always, they have to talk and they have to debate these things because these people have the ability to vote out politicians at the end of the day. Which is not the same everywhere. Just about, I mean, just about. You, you talked about Adhar system. That you talked about the India tech stack, and not a lot is talked about that outside of India. We may have heard of the demonetization push. That uh, I'm not really fully up on it, but there was that whole yes, push, yes, push to make India cashless, which sort of kind of worked, but didn't work, didn't it? So, I mean, do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Um, well, that that was an interesting. Uh... The idea of um, taking out notes, um, kind of giving people a chance to basically, if they have, there was many reasons for it, but one of the reasons was also to cr create greater transparency within the whole financial system. And in a, it has had issues, and it will. It's not easy to move over a billion people, 1.3 billion people, all along in that same path. I think to a large extent, I think it has been successful. And the reason for this, I have a very simple, in my mind, reasoning for that. It doesn't take often very much to get a lot of people onto the streets and have demonstrations that mm. say, we don't believe in this, we don't do this, we're going to have a you know, minor skirmish demonstration. If you look back and if you look even now, there have not been hardly any of those. Despite at times several several different people who had different views on whether we, should, you know, this Aadhaar system should be brought in, and and the the smaller notes taken out of the market, um, pushed for it, but mm. it didn't happen. And I think that is to the strength of the development of the um, country, which says people are beginning to understand that these things are needed. No, they are not done in Swiss-like precision or efficiency and, and there are hurdles and sometimes many things go slightly wrong. But on the whole, I think it's been a relative success. Mm. It's going to be very interesting, isn't it? I mean, everybody talks about China in the context of cashless and mobile payments and so on. And these are systems really brought in by private enterprises, you know, the Alibabas and the Tencents and so on. But not a lot is talked about. And it's great that we can sort of just share a bit of that today about India, because they, like you say, the India stack, they built the platform in a way to, uh, you know, really, I suppose, in a way, a platform which in many ways people are trying to achieve with blockchain, the similar kind of objectives, isn't it? I mean, the digitization side rather than the decentralization yeah. side. So I think that's very fascinating because, I mean, India has some of the, well, if not the most digital talent in the world. I mean, obviously it doesn't have the ecosystem of startups that you have in 
you know, China, for example. But I think for the future, I mean, you add that to the fact that there are people like yourself who have this sort of cross, this sort of overlap of worlds between medicine and and you know, digital as well. I, I think it's going to be a very interesting future. If you look at those sort of three areas overlap, you know, who knows what's going to come out of India, but I, I think it's very positive for the future. I, look, I think we can, we get too easily caught up in making comparisons the same way we make Singapore, Hong Kong, that endless comparison, who's doing <laughs> what and who is better. The same thing happens with, you know, China and India, they're very, very different societies with very different um, mix of people, with very, you know, with very open economies in many ways. Um, so you can't necessarily compare. What I'd like to see is both of these, you know, what I'd like to see in India is that, that the, that, you know, with Narendra Modi and other people, we build on the India stack, which was built obviously by public money. It was, you know, built by uh, Narendra Modi and people from, you know, contributing their time and not necessarily private companies. I don't think you're going to have a company like um, Alibaba become so, or Tencent or Pingan become as powerful in a um, in a place like India. Mm. I think it's going to be more fragmented. There's going to be, um, it's more, fewer number of these bigger companies kind of tussling it out. Now, obviously, you know, China's had 20, 30 years of such phenomenal growth. It's got such huge reserves. It's got so much money at the moment. It can also use that to basically leapfrog in many ways with the on the AI and everything you know, the uh, the push that's being put in there. Um, you're not going to have that in India. Already people are talking about, you know, having the Aadhaar on the blockchain. How does having my identities change that conversation between mm. me being an individual and owning my privacy and my data? And how does the government have access to it? I don't think you have that, those dis that kind of discussion in, you know, in China. So they, mm. So the technology can push much faster, much quicker. And also, to be honest, the, the, in China, um, the whole Belt Road initiative mm. is just phenomenal. I think it's going to be a huge spur of growth for uh. China beyond just having their companies go towards the West, you know, US or Europe. That Belt Road initiative could be phenomenal for the blockchain. Yeah, these are exciting times. That's Renu Bhatia, everybody, founding partner of Supercharger, one of the top 100 women in fintech 2018. And I have to say, probably, you know, if one of the uh, most down-to-earth philosophers and, uh, you know, and analysts of, you know, one of the most interesting technologies of the time and, you know, really to be able to put it in terms which everybody understands and, and not sort of, you know, obscure it with language and technology, which I think is unnecessary. But it's, we're all kind of waiting for blockchain, fintech even to you know, manifest and, you know, be seen in sort of tangible applications in day-to-day -day life. But you've done a really good job of helping us understand it. So, Renu, thank you so much for today. Not just for that, but also sharing your story. It's been really inspiring. It's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Loved being on this show. Yeah, likewise. Great. And please come back on as well. I'm sure you're going to have something, you know, an update for us in the future. Keep us updated on your journey. We'd love to.
We'd love to. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.